This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Heather Hampton Nodal, president of American AgriWomen. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CropLife America. Learn about the EPA regulatory process at croplifeamerica.org slash federal pesticide regulation. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with AAW's Heather Hampton Nodal next. The Environmental Protection Agency's high review standards help keep Americans safe. The agency's rigorous review process sets the standard for protecting the public and environment. That's why only 1 in 10,000 pesticides make the journey from the lab to the field. In fact, on average, it takes more than 11 years to develop data for and move fully through the EPA approval process for pesticides. Through federal preemption, EPA keeps millions of Americans safe by setting standards and creating uniform labels and packaging for pesticides. Learn more by visiting croplifeamerica.org slash federal pesticide regulation. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Heather Hampton Nodal grew up on an Illinois farm and married an Illinois farmer. She prides herself and her family and continuing a lifetime of stewardship. She says there are plenty of reasons she chooses to pursue a farming way of life. Variety is the spice of life, and you don't know when you wake up in the morning. You have a general plan, but you may end up at plan Z by the end of the day because the weather changes, the supplies, the inputs, the people, the what you have to work with change, and that keeps it interesting, keeps it challenging but also interesting, and I think ultimately being stewards of the land is really the deeper connection and having that that freedom and feeling like you are part of nature. Tell me about the American agri-women. For more than four decades, you have been around. So that puts you of coming through so many different policy things, so many farm bills, so many... Uh, so many different things have happened in agriculture over the past four and a half decades. Mm-hmm. What started American Agri-Women and what sustains you now? In the early 1970s, there was a movement by women on farms and of the farms to unite together because they realized that they had stories to tell. They saw policies emerging like the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, and recognized on a federal level, on a national level, that these would have significant impact ultimately on farming. They also saw themselves as equal partners, and in many cases sole business owners, in their farms, and found creating an organization of women allowed them to work on their terms and on their schedules. All of us play multiple roles and wear multiple hats in our daily lives. But the functioning within AgriWomen allows us to move more like a clipper ship than a battleship sometimes because we recognize that we just have so many things pulling at our time. And we can still make decisions and we can still be effective. And we sometimes have to act more like a rifle than a shotgun and be really, uh, I guess, precise. There are a number of specific commodity organizations in the nation, and they all play a critical role Mm -hmm. here in Washington inside the Beltway. 
there are general farm organizations. Yours is a general farm agriculture organization, but yet is gender specific. So how does being a general organization yet of women, how is that an advantage for you or what, what platform position does that give you? It gives us breadth that many organizations don't have. When we have this purest voice from the soil, when we have these women who come as not only nurturers and their family glue in many cases, but also managers and partners and operators and strategic thinkers, it allows us to work across uh, industries like timber and forestry over to cotton and potatoes and produce growers and understand that we don't have to live right next to each other to have common ground. And even though some states may have water rights, for example, and states east of the Mississippi may not, we can still help represent each other as we talk with our members of Congress in the different states and help bring better understanding. As we educate each other, we're able to better educate other people as well and relate more to where we are in the world and what it takes to produce you know, food in the salad bowl of California in contrast to what it takes to operate in central Illinois. This past week, mm-hmm. you had a, a group of women from across the country inside the Beltway. Mm-hmm. Um, had the opportunity to meet with legislators. You also had the opportunity to discuss issues. So first of all, what were the issues? What is what is front and center right now for farms and ranches across the country that you felt important either to learn about or to talk about with leadership on the Hill? All farms and ranches right now, I think it's safe to say, are feeling the impact of energy costs, whether directly or indirectly, at the fuel pump, or it's through inputs such as fertilizer and DEF, uh, diesel exhaust fluid, that we have to use for emission requirements, uh, as well as cost of labor. I mean, these are fundamental factors that then influence inflation. So we led with energy with our symposium at the Department of Agriculture, and we also tried to put some markers in the sand related to Farm Bill as we look forward to 2023. I don't think anyone's expecting major movement to be made this year given all the other major issues. However, it is important to talk about things like flexibility for farmers. We have the capability to feed much of the world, so let us do it. And we also talked about uh, regulatory issues with EPA as we look at things like Waters of the U.S. We look at their pesticide review and scientific advisory committees. We have a number of things that we've identified that could be changed right now that could help us improve our ability to feed, clothe, and fuel people, not only here but around the world. Do you find it ironical, as long as you've been involved in this business yourself and your husband? Mm -hmm. I think back to Earl Butts as the last time a Department of Agriculture said we need to produce more. Because moreover, policy has been about either protect the environment or how do we manage from having too much. Yeah, I guess when we look at the 80s, we go back to the sod buster, swamp buster era, don't we? I mean, that was a key feature of some of the mid-80 farm bill programs that have kind of stuck. And then equip in the 90s and conservation spending has really been 
on the rise, as so has food and nutrition as well. It seems that the time is right, right now, as people in general are talking about becoming more aware of global food flows and supplies. Ukraine is just one example. But what's on the horizon here with developing countries is absolutely frightening. If we don't provide some inputs to them right now, this summer time frame, so that they can be producing south of the equator in developing countries, people haven't even begun to see what unrest really looks like. If we start thinking about the famine and the potential, already right now I think the projections are we've increased from 400 million people to 1.6 billion based on food prices alone, let alone the availability of the food, meaning can we produce it, can it be produced. Yet in the U.S., we're not far from developing new farm policy, not just for the day, but for the next 60 months. And there is a movement that says farm policy should be about sustainability and about carbon sequestration and climate change. Mm -hmm. And there is a movement from agriculture that says, yes, but we need a safety net to be able to survive economic and and weather-related times that are beyond our control. And these two things have to come together in new policy, and the outcome is productivity. Well, and we in American Agriwoman would say, first and foremost, we farm for food. We farm to produce food and fiber, in the case of cotton, and our timber growers, and renewable fuels. Key word, actually, renewable fuels. And when you look at the Midwest, let's, let's, let's take the leap into carbon. If we try to farm just for carbon, number one, it'll be questionable what that ultimately will do for the environment. Everything is based on models and algorithms right now. So what kind of real cost-benefit analysis do we have from a neutral party that can inform us of those outcomes in a range of scenarios? I've seen some studies, and we could go down that rabbit hole, but in terms of farming for food, fiber, and fuel, that requires flexibility in these farm programs. It requires allowing us to focus on what we do and doing the best we can at it. And if we are able to sequester carbon, as a side note, great. But to truly be sustainable, it must be economically and socially sustainable as well. Personally, I'd like to see many farmers left in Montgomery County, Illinois, not just five at the end of the day. But if this continued push toward carbon over everything else continues, I am deeply concerned about the capability of an individual farmer to be able to keep the records, let alone invest in the technologies that might be required to do this, and us still, us as a country, still be able to meet our yield gains, let alone existing yield levels. Having said that, we as an organization also support continued investments in research, both domestically and internationally. So we can say, what are the best practices in this huge myriad variety of soils? To me, soil is the Earth's DNA, and it is as varied, if not more varied, than the people on the planet. So just because it's going to work one location does not mean it will work in another location, not only because of climate and topography, but the actual soil itself. And these situations change every day. So having a farmer who's experienced on the ground and who can manage that is absolutely paramount. And if we can apply technologies, you know, using broadband, a prime 
applying more precision agriculture to give us more intelligence, to make us smarter, make us better, help us make better decisions that work for the soil, for the plants to grow food and fiber and fuel, and for our air and water, this this is a win-win. But we have figured out how to do that here. And a lot of countries, they haven't yet figured that out because they are just trying to figure out how to just survive. If the American agri-women had an audience of those who will be involved in developing the new farm policy, what would be your priorities? Our priorities would be the flexibility in conservation, the application of conservation. And we can get into some details on what those points might look like. It would be continued research in public research that won't just get shelved until some company's ready to roll it out. Commercialization of that research in a way that allows it to get out to people. And we've relied on extension in the past, not so much now for our agriculture information, maybe some testing and depends on the state. It's so varied. We would talk about emphasizing a U.S. grown approach as well. Let's take pride in our capability and let's promote the fact that in the last 75 years we've been able to almost triple our production on about the same amount of land we were farming 75 years ago. No one else can say that. We've actually had land go out of production and at the same time we've increased our acreage in private forests. That is success. And we can continue to do that if we have the flexibility to do it. And that's what we would say in that audience. So if you had an audience as president of the American Agri Women with Michael Regan, the administrator of the EPA, what would you suggest regarding the roundtables and of input for what land is covered by a water law? I would introduce him to my friends who are attorneys and are familiar with the Supreme Court rulings and familiar with the congressional definitions and say, that's pretty clear in terms of where your authority stops and where your authority applies. That's what I would say very candidly. Energy is a two-edged sword for farms. Number one, you've seen revenue from it, Mm -hmm. and you have the promise of even additional revenue with advanced biofuels. Mm -hmm. But you also have to pay for energy to function the operations. We advise the administration to unleash the U.S. energy capacity. We have the capability with pipeline projects, with energy production that we need to run food processing and input processing that we rely on. We need refineries for the fuel that we put into our vehicles. The likelihood of going to an all-electric fleet is, at this time, it seems unrealistic to think that a combine that you might run for an 18-hour day would have enough time to charge and then keep going if it were solar-powered, for example, or an all-electric vehicle. I mean, it just makes no sense. And plus, the energy that's required somewhere in the grid to make that happen. It is not as easy as we'd like it to be. And so we have to make some hard decisions that may seem culturally unpopular at this time. But economically and environmentally, we know how to use energy wisely. We know how to produce it. We know how to extract it. The administration needs to have consistent application of its permit process for rare earth minerals in mining. These are things that make a real difference in our ability to feed and fuel and clothe 
our people. And they can do it today. It doesn't require billions of dollars of cash outlay of tax money that we don't have. So let's stay with the Environmental Protection Agency. And what do you say now about the consistency or the certainty of what products you're going to be able to use on the farm to protect the crops that you raise? We question why they have not listened to their own scientific advisory committees who have reviewed products that are widely used across many aspects of agriculture, have been shown repeatedly to have minimal impacts on, like residual impacts on the environment, on people, on animals. So, in other words, some of the safest products that are out there, and yet the agency is still attempting to recall them or to ratchet down the toxicity levels, you know, acceptable, allowable limits. And so we question, why have you not listened to those scientific advisory committees? Why do you continue to pursue policies that would easily, increasing costs of food production is is one outcome, but also potentially take some very safe products off the market. Why? Justifies reason. You are a wife and a mother and a farmer. <laughs> and your organization is made up of wives, mothers, farmers, ranchers. What is unique about your group? And what do you say to other women to encourage them to join your effort or at least to step up within their own organizations and tell their story. Well, I'd add we also have many members who are in agribusiness in one form or another, whether it's helping with marketing and or insurance or finance. I mean, we have many, many members across all aspects of the food and agriculture chain. And I would hope that they look at the AmericanAgriWomen.org website as a starting point to say, you know, I, I want to find out more about them. And you can join online. It's that easy. Or you may find we now have some member concierge who will then follow up and say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. What are your interests? And let me try to help connect you to other women across the U.S. who may have similar interests. Uh, to me, that's pretty exciting. You know, it's more of a personal experience at that point when we're we're so, I think, accustomed in the last few years to being feeling maybe sequestered at home and maybe we have some social media contact, but boy, wouldn't it be nice to establish that genuine in-person relationship? And AgriWomen allows you to do that. You may also have a state affiliate where you're at and be able to get together with them as well. So has the role of a woman in agriculture changed in your lifetime and especially in the last decade? Definitely. I think we've seen it in the sense of at the farm level, I think agriculture has led the way in terms of equality because when there's work to be done, it's all hands on deck. And those partnerships have been there from time immemorial, right? That's solid. But what we've seen in the industry in the last 10 to 15 years is a lot of change in the types of roles that women are filling and how well they're doing at it. There are just some absolutely incredible people, male and female, in agriculture. It's wonderful to see more women rising to upper management levels and helping lead teams and direct initiatives that are ultimately shaping our future. 
Heather, you have a lot going on. You're hoping, <laughs> you're hoping for enough rain, but not too much. Uh, you're watching uh, regulatory issues debated. You're preparing for a farm bill to come down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're working with your own family, and you took time to be with us uh, on this edition of Open Mic. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but you know on Open Mic, you have the last word, so the mic's yours. Well, I'd say, Jeff and anyone who's listening, Help us to unleash our capacity to feed and clothe and fuel not only our country, but the world. We need flexibility. We need realistic regulations to protect not only our environment and ourselves, but also consumers, and we recognize that. But we need realistic regulations that allow us to produce and do what we do well. So, to borrow a line from a a Disney movie... Be our guest and let us feed you. <laughs> our thanks to Heather Hampton Nodal, president of the American AgriWomen, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CropLife America. Learn about the EPA regulatory process at croplifeamerica.org slash federal pesticide regulation. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly. <laughs>